One of the most devastating experiences that God's people can have is the sense that God has forsaken us or that God has forgotten about us. Now, to be sure, that actually never happens. God never forsakes us and He never forgets us, but life is harder than we had ever thought. And it turns out that our strength is also weaker than we had ever thought. And so we sometimes find ourselves doubly pressed uh, by trials without and weakness within. And that is when despair sets in. And out of despair, we, we feel as though God has forsaken us and he has forgotten about us. And it just seems that God doesn't care. It seems that God is not near. Well, once again, that is never the case. God is near and he does care. And in the last chapter, we saw how God comes near a despairing people. And in chapter 49, we saw that God's comfort for the despairing and broken people took a form, took the form of a love that is stronger than a mother's love for her child. And we saw in chapter 49 how God comforts the despairing with the incomparable power with which he promised to rescue and set the captives free. But of course, because the feeling and the sense that God has forsaken us and forgotten us is such a devastating experience, God does not stop there. And in chapter 50, he continues to send his healing balms. And in chapter 50, God's healing balm and his comfort comes in the form of the suffering and obedient servant. And so that is what we are seeing in this chapter, a continuation of the mournful cry in chapter 49, verse 14. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And really the question that is foremost in this chapter is Zion, God's people, in their despair, wondering, is it all over now? Is it all over now? Well, it's an understandable question, isn't it? Because at that time, Zion found herself captives and prisoners of foreign powers. God's temple had been destroyed. They were separated forcibly and physically from their homes. They saw their family and friends die. They lost everything. And to make the matters worse, they knew in the depths of their heart that they caused this through their sin. And so they are in deep despair, and they are wondering, is it really all over? And as Zion considers her circumstances, she feels the anguish of a people who see no way back to God. But the Lord asks in verse 1, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? with which I sent her away. Now, it sounds a little bit cryptic, uh, but understand that the background 
for that statement, that question is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And there in the law, we read that when a husband divorces his wife and sends her away with the certificate of divorce, it, may, it's, it creates a situation in which the marriage relationship cannot be restored. Because when a husband sends his wife away with the certificate of divorce, and then she goes and marries another husband, and upon either her second husband's death or another divorce from her second husband, that wife cannot be restored to her first husband. So when a husband sends his wife away with a certificate of divorce, it is no longer possible to restore the marriage relationship. And that is why God is asking here to the people who are in deep despair and wondering, is it all over now? There is no way back to God. God is asking, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? And the implied answer, unspoken answer, is that there is no certificate of divorce. You see, Zion walked away from God. But God never sent her away. Zion committed idolatry, but God never divorced her. God never gave her a certificate of divorce. And that, that means that, you know, this is what happens. You sin, there's an inevitable consequence. You give your life to idolatry, the only thing that you get out of is pain, misery, torment, and despair. And inevitably, in the aftermath of Zion's idolatry, she fears that there is no way back to God. But God is saying, not so. There is a way back for you to me. I never sent you away. I never divorced you. I am able, and I am willing to receive you back. That's the first answer that God gives. But Zion, as she considers her own circumstances, she feels another kind of an anguish, and that is an anguish of slavery. Now, once again, uh, if you look to, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 4, you realize that in those days, it was common practice for the creditors to take the debtor's wife and children as payment. So if you borrow money from somebody, and if you can pay back what you borrow, your creditor can come and take your wife and your children and sell them as slaves. That was the common practice of the day. And Zion feels as though they've been sold as slaves. But God says, which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? And God is saying, to whom do I owe? And to whom was I not able to make payment that I had to sell you into captivity? And of course, the answer is no one. God owes nothing to anyone, and he has not sold them into slavery. And just as if God had divorced Zion, that would surely mean that God's unfailing love had failed. Do you see the implication? That's what God's divorce of Zion would mean, that his unfailing love had actually failed. But God did not divorce Zion. God did not send her away. 
And if God was somehow in debt to someone that he could not pay, that he had to sell his children to make up for his debts, then God would be proved as both weak and inadequate to meet the needs of his people. And that's what Zion is thinking, you see. That's how Zion has assessed who God is and what he has done. God, he has sent us away. There is no way back to God. And God, he has sold us into slavery. But do you see that God, God is not as Zion has imagined. And neither is Zion's situation as she has imagined. Although she feels forsaken and forgotten, the facts are not as she feels. Because contrary to her feelings, God did not forsake her and God did not forget her. Rather, the Lord says, Behold, for your iniquities you are sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. In other words, what God is saying is that it was not my doing. It was yours. You walked away. You sold yourself into slavery. Because the truth of the matter is God came to them through his prophets, but they simply would not receive him. So verse 2, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? And the Lord is saying, I came to you. I spoke to you. I called you. But you were nowhere to be found. You did not listen. You did not answer. Now, these are very painful things to hear, isn't it? Now, what is God doing? Is God simply pouring salt on their wound? You know, God is not like that. And that is most certainly not what God is doing. Rather, God is showing them just exactly what their situation is so that he can show them that he alone can restore them back to him, that he alone can give them a future. So that is the first question that, that, that meets us in this chapter. Is it all over now? By no means. God is able to restore them. And God is able to give them a future. How? And that brings us to the second point. The servant is the way back. The servant is the way back. There is no other way for sinful people to return to God except through obedience. And that is why starting with verse 4, we see how the suffering servant of the Lord is the healing balm that Zion desperately needs. So in verse 4 we read, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. And this is a powerful contrast because Zion in disobedience walked away from God. Her only way back to God is through obedience. And because Zion ignored God's word, God has sent a servant, his faithful servant, who is 
a devoted disciple of God's Word. And it is from the Word of God that this servant has learned to speak timely and comforting and fitting words to heal those who are weary. And what we see here is Jesus doing exactly that. The servant of the Lord who has learned from the word of God to speak in a timely, in a fitting, in the perfectly suited way to lift up those that are crushed and weary. And we see how the word of God was central to the servant's calling. In verse 4 we read, Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. This is, of course, Isaiah foreseeing the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a prophetic statement of what Jesus' life is going to be like. And here we read the servant of the Lord, Jesus, saying, Morning by morning, God awakens. He, God, awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. In other words, God roused his servant, his son, Jesus. He roused them every morning for instruction and fellowship in his word. And it is through that instruction and fellowship of the word every morning that the servant's heart and mind were conformed to God's will. Now, I don't have the time to make a, a, a long point about this, but I'll just say this for now. If that's what Jesus needed to do, to know and love and obey God's will, to be awakened every morning, to be instructed in the Word of God, and to have fellowship with God's Word. Don't you just think maybe, maybe you and I need that too? But I'll move on. Every morning God aroused them, His servant, His son, for instruction in the Word and fellowship with his word. And that is why the servant's heart and mind were conformed to God's will, so much so that he says, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. What that means is that as Jesus gave himself to to study and understand God's will in his word, he understood that God's will for him was suffering and death. And it's the kind of thing that would naturally make you want to rebel and turn backward. Because through the word of God, the servant Jesus learned that there is no other way for sinful people, for crushed people to be restored to God unless he himself stood in their place to suffer both in body and mind. And unless he, he endured insult and disgrace in their place and for them, there was no other way for sinful and crushed people to, to be restored to God. And again, it's the kind of a thing, once you realize, 
is something that you would want to turn from. But even then, even when he understood that God's will for him was not to be carried back to glory on a bed of roses, but God's will for him was the cross, death, rejection. Even then, Jesus would not turn back. And he says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Uh, in the culture of the ancient Near East, that, to pull out a man's beard was considered a great act of insult. And so Jesus is saying, I knew what lay ahead of me, but I did not merely let it happen to me. I gave my back to them. Jesus, knowing full well what lay before him, he unreservedly gave himself to obey God's will, even if it meant suffering and death. And how was he able to do that? You see, Jesus knew, and this is one of the things that he learned from Scripture. Jesus knew that the same God who taught him, that same God would help him in his obedience. So verse 7, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. God will help me, and so my trust in him will not turn out to be a wasted, futile, and a shameful thing. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. In other words, no temptation would lead Jesus away from his God-ordained path. And he steeled his heart, and he set his fate like a hard rock so that he would not be pulled one way or another. In fact, this is what we read in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke writes, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, taken up to the cross, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go up to Jerusalem. He his eyes were pointed in one direction. He would not turn either left or to the right. He was determined. He set his face like a flint, like a hard rock. And Jesus did not turn from God's will. You see, he knew. He knew that suffering and death lay before him, but he went willingly and without reservation. And you see, that, that is how sinful people like you and I find our way back to God. It's his faithful obedience that is the answer to Zion's disobedience. It's his faithful service that answers Zion's rebellion. And that is how God brings back his bride and his children to himself.
And this is how Jesus is able. Jesus is able to speak so fittingly and so appropriately to us. He says to you who are broken, to me, carrying the shame of our sin, that he says to us, but I have suffered and I have died. You are not forsaken. You are not forgotten. The servant is the way back. And that brings us to the final point, which is, your, which is a question. What lights your darkness? What lights your darkness? You see, Jesus the Redeemer is also our pattern, and he is also our leader. That means we follow Jesus where and how he has traveled. And so verse 10, we read, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? Now, let me make a quick remark, and I don't have the time to develop it, but I I would encourage you to mull it over when you go home today. Notice how the two statements are in parallel. Who among you fears the Lord, that's one half of the statement, and obeys the voice of his servant? Fearing the Lord and obeying the servant is one and the same thing. And think about what that means. And add that to all that the scripture says about God's relationship with Jesus. Jesus is no mere man. For to fear the Lord and to obey the voice of the servant is one and the same thing. And at the very least, what you and I need to remember is that Jesus is a sure and a reliable guide to God's will. And so like Jesus, this passage is commanding us, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Because that's what Jesus did. You see, when Jesus, he walked in darkness He trusted in the name of the Lord. He trusted in God who will vindicate him. Though the whole world thought that he was suffering and dying for his sins, God raised him from the dead, vindicating Jesus and declaring him righteous. And that's what this passage is calling us to do. You know, you and I, we are doubly pressed. We face trials without. And we face weakness within. And to our great consternation, God, God does not take us out of suffering. And we we feel this immense temptation to shrink back and to lose heart. But Jesus relied on God's help. He trusted God to vindicate him, and Jesus faithfully obeyed. And what has God done? 
he raised Jesus from the dead and he exalted Jesus with glory. And death, loved ones, is our light in darkness. To trust God in darkness and to rely on God's help. There's, of course, an alternative, and the alternative is very disappointing. Look at verse 11. Behold, all you, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Remember, God's word broke the night for Jesus every morning with the full strength of the sun. But so many people think that their little matchstick, a little bit of dim flame that they conjure up, will hold a candle to trusting Jesus. And so Isaiah says, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled, this you have from my hand, that you shall lie down in torment. Do you know what Isaiah is saying? Do you know what the Lord is saying? He is saying you cannot fight darkness in your own strength. Beat the darkness of sin, beat the darkness of hardship, weakness, whatever it may be, trusting in your own resources ensures that you will never escape or conquer darkness. And so I ask you once again, what lights your darkness? Is it as the prophet Malachi says in chapter 4, is it the son of righteousness that rises with healing in its wings? Or are you trying to light your darkness with the flickering embers of a dying fire that is your wit and your resources? Would you trust in Jesus? Trust in Jesus when sin has crushed you. Trust in Jesus when hardships of life has worn you down. For every darkness and every trial, Jesus, Jesus, he is your help and he is your strength. Amen. Now let's pray together. Oh, Lord God and Father, we thank you for the light of Jesus Christ, how he endured and persevered, trusting you, leaning on you, and relying on your help. And we pray that we may find that Jesus to be our comfort, our healing balm, and our strength. Father, surely many of us here are burdened, and we are hard-pressed. Some burdens we are able to share, and yet we have secret burdens that we cannot share. And we are weary, and we are tired, and we are broken. Oh God, be our light in our darkness. May your unfailing, never forsaking, never forgetting love be our comfort today. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.